I'm Lloyd Freeman, and this is Dimensions of Diversity. Today's episode is a really personal episode because it's about a program that is really near and dear to my heart. Uh, at our firm, Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney, we rolled out leadership diversity pledges for everyone in our senior management. Uh, it was an opportunity for everyone who took a leadership role within the firm to also make sure they were doing something personally to help us to advance diversity and inclusion within our firm and within the profession as a whole. Our chairman and CEO, Joe Doherty, is here with us today to talk about his pledge and how that really ended up in a mentoring relationship with Titi Patel, uh, a rising 2L at Temple Law School. Welcome to you both. Well, hello, Lloyd. Hi, Lloyd. I'm excited to hear about this because I have not really gotten a chance to dig in and find out how your mentoring relationship has been going, but we have to start at the very beginning. Uh, Joe, we rolled out these leadership diversity pledges to everyone in, in senior management at the firm. And yours was to become a mentor and not just any mentor, you specifically wanted a law student. So tell me why mentoring and why a law student? Well, well, two things there. Why, you know, why mentoring is I just think it's important to try and pay it forward and pass on advice and try and help. And uh, I went, we catch the idea of being uh, a mentor to a law student. It's a little bit different. And B, I wanted to look outside the four walls of just the firm. We're doing a lot diversity-wise inside the firm, but there's there's so much more that needs to be done, you know, in the community, in the legal community, and things like that. So I thought it'd be a good idea um, to broaden our horizons, so to speak, in my diversity efforts to go and do something, you know, in the legal community. And I thought, what better place to be, but you know, at you know, at the law student level. Titi, you're just wrapping up your first year, uh, and that is when we contacted you to let you know that our CEO would like to be your mentor. What was your reaction uh, to hear that, A, you were going to get a mentor, and B, it was going to be chairman and CEO of a law firm? Well, Lloyd, I don't know if you and Joe remember this, but the first time we talked, I had no idea what I was getting myself into when <laughs> I signed up to even be considered for this opportunity. And I think I was really lucky to get paired with a person and a firm that feels really strongly about the idea of mentoring and the idea of committing to diversity outside of what Joe just said, the four walls of the firm. Um, I've been really lucky to have really wonderful mentors over the past few years of my education and my work life. And it was kind of daunting at first to be paired with the CEO of a firm, but being with Joe has given me the opportunity to kind of get a bird's eye view of the legal industry which is a totally unique perspective and one that I don't think that I would have gotten for many, many years after working in this field at all. I love it, but it seems as if there, despite the differences, and I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, there, there's generational, there's racial and ethnic, I mean, there's gender, all these things, uh, which others may have found to be barriers, uh, right? Barriers to the relationship even forming and certainly for it to be successful. How did you overcome those barriers? What were some of those initial conversations like? How'd you break the ice, Joe? How do we break the ice? I mean, really, it was just sit down and talk. Frankly, you know, where are you in the school year? Where are you? Here's what I remember when I was at that point. Here's what I thought was important. What's coming up on the horizon? How can I help you? How can I give you any advice that would, you know, apply and, and give you some guidance? It really was just sitting down and just, you know, beginning to talk. What were your ultimate goals, Tithi, for the mentoring relationship? I tried not to come in with too many. I think trying to come in with a set expectation for what this brand new relationship is gonna look like would have bogged us down a little bit. But like Joe said, we just talked a little bit, found you know a couple of things that we had in common. We both came from working class families. And so that was a good way for us to kind of connect at the very beginning. And then 
as I was kind of just, you know, thinking things in my head about what my legal education and my legal profession might look like, just kind of voiced those out loud to Joe. And it was a little bit of a way of just kind of having somebody to speak to and then getting his thoughts back, um, maybe in ways that I hadn't thought about them before or in ways that he experienced. So for example, I'm doing right on right now for law school. And Joe told me a little bit about you know, what his experience would have been like when he was a law student doing that and his perspective of how important or not important things like law review are as somebody who's going to be entering the workforce in a few years. Tithi sure learned a lot. What have you learned, Joe? First of all, law school has changed a whole lot since I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, it opens my eyes to what the current experience is, um, some of the pressures and stresses, frankly, of going out in the job market as it exists today, um, that you know, students are paying attention, they care, um, they're trying to chart courses as to their careers and how important that is and how competitive it is. You know, and you know, so Teeth and I have said a lot of conversations about, you know, how to approach that strategy-wise and things like that. But for me, it really kind of opens my eyes to um, a lot of the current experience of law students, which I'm pretty insulated from. So it's been very helpful in that way. That's really good. Joe, I'd love for uh, to kind of find out where your inspiration came from here. And I know that you talked about generally, you know, of course, from where you sit in your role in a law firm, why it was important. But I know your personal uh, story around mentorship, but you didn't have the benefit of a mentor when you were coming up through the ranks, correct? I did not. And yeah, so how you know, I, I would say, I don't think I ever recognized the benefits of having a mentor at the time. I think it was clueless. It wasn't, it wasn't a choice. I didn't run from one and no one was offered to me. And I, you know, I just was, you know, I grew up in a circumstance where it wasn't clear to me that developing relationships with professors and developing relationships with um, the partners that I was working for and things like that was something that was going to benefit me. You know, I was always focused on, you know, what's the assignment, what's the task ahead of me, very task oriented, not that bigger picture. And looking back on it, I always felt now, I now feel, I recognize, I could have really benefited from, from, from some of that. So I wanted to pass on and be available and give that benefit to others that I, I missed, frankly, only because I think I didn't recognize the importance and the benefit of it. Titi, what would be your advice for others who are either searching for a mentor or who are actually fortunate enough to get paired with a mentor around how do you make the relationship work? Yeah, I think I have a, a couple piece of, pieces of advice and they might sound a little conflicting, but I think they're all really important in cultivating a pretty well-rounded relationship. Mm -hmm. So first, I think, like we've mentioned a couple of times, communication is everything. Not only does your mentor need to hear from you, but you need to hear from them. And I think setting ground rules about how you want to communicate, how often you want to communicate is a good way to kind of get that started because then you've established your, your method, right? Like I email Joe whenever I have a thought and he gets back to me. I could call him, I could email him, and that's what works for us. Um, and you know what? I think sometimes students can be afraid to do things like that because it, I didn't feel like I'm obligated to Joe's time, but it's important to keep in mind, like a mentor has taken this step to make themselves available to a student. And I think it's really important that students keep that in mind when they develop a mentorship um, relationship with someone. But I think the flip side of that is, I don't think you're expected to vibe with everyone. Um, I think often when you get paired in 
to some kind of mentorship program more formally, you might feel like you have to stick around with that mentor. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, but like I said before, I think communicating that to your mentor is really important and you can create your relationship, you know, more narrowly if it doesn't need to be so or like so broad or um, as organic as you might have hoped for. And I think just being open to what's coming to you is really important as well. Um, just because it's not something that you thought it was going to be, whether for better or for worse, um, that person is still a relationship that you have. And I think it's important to just keep that in mind. Lloyd, if I can jump in for one second, you know, from the mentor side of that, uh, I think a lot of the time the mentors may be looking for guidance on how to help as well. So I think that if you're a mentee, it, it is helpful, you know, with, with limits and boundaries on it, of course, to try and guide where that relationship is and where you need help and where you don't need help and kind of help structure it. I think most mentors um, don't have a whole lot of experience in mentorship. You don't get any training at all. So you're kind of thrown in it, in it together and getting feedback from both sides of what's working or what's productive, frankly, uh, versus what's just doing it for the sake of doing it, I think is really helpful. Well, I'll tell you that I know that one of the um, ways in which, you know, people do end up running from becoming a mentor is because they think about the time commitment, Joe. And uh, they're worried that, you know, listen, I'm a busy uh, attorney in a law firm or insert whatever profession here, right? And I've got all of my professional obligations and I'm also active in, you know, nonprofit, nonprofit and civic organizations and family, et cetera. How am I going to carve out some time uh, for a mentee? What's your advice for those other leaders of organizations or busy professionals uh, around the time commitment uh, and how you can make time to be a mentor? My immediate reaction to that is if it's important to you, you will make time, frankly. Uh, it is as much time as you want to give it. You can be as efficient. The way we communicate today is very easy. But, you know, there's a lot of different things competing with your time. You're busy. You're going to prioritize. And if it's something that matters to you or something that you think is productive, productive in helping somebody, trust me, you know, I get a busy schedule. We find the time. You know, you, you make the time for the things that are important. All right, Tithi, I'm putting you on the spot here. What's the best advice Joe has given you? We want to know what's happening behind the scenes in these mentoring sessions. <laughs> I, think, I think the best advice that Joe has given me is just to be open to everything. And as someone who feels like they need to kind of like pick what they're doing and follow that path, like I very much have come to Joe and been like, I don't know what practice area I'm interested in. I don't know if I want to be a transactional lawyer or a litigator. And Joe told me a story about how he got into litigation and it was just very happenstance circumstantial. And I think hearing the message that, listen, I've had a successful career over this many years of working and I'm doing just fine. And I didn't know that this was the path that I was going to take is really reassuring and has helped me kind of keep an open mind and try out different things as I kind of make my way through my summer internship and through classes and all of that. Last question for you, Joe, uh, you have one mentee. Uh, I know that again, we're talking about kind of time commitments. Is that the, is that the sweet spot? Is it having one mentee and being able to devote all of your time there? Or is it really through diversifying and having, uh, you know, a, a small group and having maybe a mentoring circle? What would be your, um, your preference there? 
Well, you know, I, the more impact you give on the more people, the better. Uh, I do like having the one men team in my position. I'm, I'm, I find myself often in different groups and things, giving advice to greater groups, but not mm -hmm. on the mentee level. It would be interesting to try to have a group of mentees at the same time as well. But I, I kind of like the one-on-one, -on -one, to be honest with you. The one-on-one -on -one makes a lot of sense to me because that way uh, you have a focus. You're not spread out. I would say the one-on-one -on -one probably is the most productive, most effective. But that being said, I find myself looking at the leadership development program last week, telling my whole story and, you know, giving my top 10 uh, tidbits of advice on being a leader, which went out to be 12, so much for the top 10. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I, so I feel like I'm in, in a mentoring position for, you know, just given my role in the firm to a lot of people, but on a less structured basis. I'll tell you both uh, that from listening to the stories around your relationship and how it was formed and how it's going, uh, it really does strike a chord with me because I can tell you that I wouldn't be in the seat that I'm in right now if it was not for uh, many great mentors. Uh, and to be very, very frank with you, um, there were very few of them who looked like me. Uh, and so we've talked about this a, a ton on our podcast around intentionality uh, and intentionality really in everything that you do, if you really want to you know, advance, uh, move the needle in D&I intentionality and making sure that if we're going to pour into the next generation, uh, it's okay for those to cross, you know, cultural, racial, um, and ethnic and gender lines uh, to make sure that we are creating a next generation that's going to be even better than we are. So uh, I certainly applaud you, Joe, for your intentionality and making sure that you are living up to that pledge. And it's really um, uh, being personified here, but hopefully it's also inspiring other leaders within our firm and also within the profession. Uh, and kudos to you, Tithi, for really making sure that this relationship is one that is really nurtured and that it grows. Thank you both for joining us on the, on the show. Thank you, Lloyd. Thanks, Thank Lloyd. you, Tithi. Thanks, Joe. And now it's time for DEI Today, where we discuss current headlines and their corresponding impacts on DNI initiatives across the nation. I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Shauna Williams. Hey, Shauna. Hello, Lloyd. We all love Uber, but Uber is under attack. Uh, some employees at Uber felt very lectured and scolded because uh, there were two events that the company hosted that focused on the experience of white women at Uber, which sounds benign on its face, but Uber's head of DEI uh, has been suspended uh, and placed on leave from moderating two events titled Don't Call Me Karen. The events were intended to dive into the spectrum of American white women's experience and explain why the term Karen is derogatory. And we all know that Karen is this term that has been created and coined for entitled white women who unnecessarily insert themselves into situations and cause conflict because of their prejudices. Uh, and so employees complain to this uh, diversity head uh, about these particular webinars or, or seminars that were being put on. And the second installment of the Don't Call Me Karen event just seems like it took people over the edge. Um, so now there is DEI head on a leave of absence because of these programs. You know, what do you think, Shauna, about when we take our DEI lens and we start exploring it kind of from the overrepresented perspective sometimes? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fine line, right? You really have to make sure it is that a you fine are, line. You have to make sure that you're not at some point getting into victim shaming uh, or, or maybe even some sort of saviorism, depending upon, you know, kind of how you position the topic. But uh, yeah, that was a... That was a very ambitious program, uh, and very. I, I wonder how they even how they even approached it, and potentially harmful. Not even potentially, 
Because the Karens don't just cause conflict per se, they can cause real life danger for oh people my goodness, of color. People have been arrested. Absolutely. People have absolutely been arrested. Police have been called. Uh, and then that gets into, you know, again, whether there's a police brutality piece or whether there's other kinds of uh, biases or someone gets a record, um, all because people are overreacting. Again, we're not saying that there aren't some instances where people are just in calling the police. I'm not, we're not saying that. Mm -hmm. We are saying when it turns into a, quote, Karen situation, that is uh, what it has been referred to. So we'll be monitoring this to find out how Uber responds uh, and whether or not Uber can really move past this uh, in their DEI journey. I think it is important to approach a DEI lens regarding overrepresented groups in some ways, some cases. One, in this particular instance, I would love to know why it is they don't want to be called Karen. Is it because it hurts their feelings? Is it because they feel like they're wrong? They're wrongfully being accused of being a Karen just based on the color of their skin and because they're a woman? Like, I need to know more information because I don't want to also shame someone, you know, who, you know, is a white woman who has been receiving, you know, Karen, I don't know, type accusations when they haven't deserved them. But I also Correct. would love for the same group of people, especially this DEI um, executive, to understand, you know, the the damage, the reason why this, this Karen name has been, you know, created. Well, in all things DEI, we are sure to uh, stop ourselves short of any assumptions or presumptions about people. Right. Uh, and so this is also not a scenario where, you know, everyone who identifies as a white woman is a Karen. Correct. Karen is a specific, you know, group of people right. uh, who end up calling the police and, quote, overreacting based upon someone identifies in a way other than me. And so I am now called. Listen, I've even heard people in a joking manner, who are not white women being referred to as a Karen, mm -hmm. simply because know you know, they are snitching or they are tattling. Uh -huh. or they are, you know, again, blowing up a situation uh, and making it out more than it's supposed to be. So I think that that probably if we discuss that. Right. That's uh, what I was going to say. It's a misconception. About, yeah. 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 That's what that is. Again, when you're talking about one of those very, very precarious situations uh, and making sure, again, that you're not taking the point of view from the individual who has been uh, oppressed or who has uh, very much so been treated unjustly and um, beginning to trivialize it uh, yes. because you want to make sure that a quote overrepresented population feels a bit more safe. We want to make sure that we're not succumbing to some sort of fragility. Right. So there's good news out of the state of Florida in the DEI space. The state of Florida has actually mandated lactation spaces in courthouses across the state. Uh, there's a Florida Senate bill that mandates clean and private lactation spaces in courthouses all throughout Florida. Uh, and that has cleared both chambers uh, of its legislature with bipartisan support. And the new law will allow Florida women entering and working in courthouses, uh, you know, so that's the judges, attorneys, jurors, personnel, visitors, et cetera, to be able to breastfeed or pump in safe, hygienic and private spaces. Um, I am happy that they are making this move. I hope that this is a move that of course, private employers are already following. Uh, and maybe, you know, we're just now making that move over to uh, the courthouses, but this is absolutely necessary. You know, we want to make sure that Agreed. the workplace is one where people who have decided, listen, I, I also am not only want to be a, an employee or a professional, but I also want to be a mother. I also want to be a, uh, a mother who breastfeeds. 
that you're able to still do that uh, and perform your job and there are no barriers to you doing that. Uh, and so providing lactation spaces, absolutely, just like gender neutral restrooms, absolutely. and those other accommodations uh, at the workplace, they should totally be there. Dimensions of Diversity is brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll and Rooney. Please rate and review our podcast. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to hear all of our new content as we continue to explore ways in which we can all advance diversity and inclusion. I'm your host, Lloyd Freeman. Thank you for listening.